Chapter 19 of The Financier by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The growth of a passion is a very peculiar thing. In highly organized intellectual and artistic types, it is so often apt to begin with keen appreciation of certain qualities, modified by many, many mental reservations. The egoist, the intellectual, gives but little of himself, and asks much. Nevertheless, the lover of life, male or female, finding himself or herself in sympathetic accord with such a nature, is apt to gain much. Cowperwood was innately and primarily an egoist and intellectual, though blended strongly therewith, was a humane and democratic spirit. We think of egoism and intellectualism has closely confined to the arts. Finance is an art, and it presents the operations of the subtlest of the intellectuals and of the egoists. Cowperwood was a financier. Instead of dwelling on the works of nature, its beauty and subtlety, to his material disadvantage, he found a happy mean, owing to the swiftness of his intellectual operations, whereby he could intellectually and emotionally rejoice in the beauty of life without interfering with his perpetual material and financial calculations. And when it came to women and morals, which involved so much relating to beauty, happiness, a sense of distinction, and variety in living, he was but now beginning to suspect, for himself at least, that apart from maintaining organized society in its present form, there was no basis for this one life, one love idea. How had it come about that so many people agreed on this single point, that it was good and necessary to marry one woman and cleave to her until death? He did not know. It was not for him to bother about the subtleties of evolution, which even then was being noised abroad or to ferret out the curiosities of history in connection with this matter. He had no time. Suffice it that the vagaries of temperament and conditions with which he came into immediate contact proved to him that there was a great dissatisfaction with that idea. People did not cleave to each other until death, and in thousands of cases where they did, they did not want to. Quickness of mind, subtlety of idea, fortuitousness of opportunity made it possible for some people to write their matrimonial and social infelicities, whereas for others, because of dullness of wit, thickness of comprehension, poverty, and lack of charm, there was no escape from the slough of their despond. They were compelled by some devilish accident of birth or lack of force or resourcefulness to stew in their own juice of wretchedness, or to shuffle off this mortal coil, which, under other circumstances, had such glittering possibilities, via the rope, the knife, the bullet, or the cup of poison. I would die, too, he thought to himself one day, reading of a man who, confined by disease and poverty, had lived for twelve years alone in a back bedroom, attended by an old and probably decrepit housekeeper. A darning needle forced into his heart had ended his earthly woes. To the devil with such a life! Why twelve years? 
Why not at the end of the second or third? Again, it was so very evident in so many ways that force was the answer, great mental and physical force. Why, these giants of commerce and money could do as they pleased in this life and did. He had already had ample local evidence of it in more than one direction. Worse, the little guardians of so-called law and morality, the newspapers, the preachers, the police, and the public moralists generally, so loud in their denunciation of evil in humble places, were cowards all when it came to corruption in high ones. They did not dare to utter a feeble squeak until some giant had accidentally fallen, and they could do so without danger to themselves. Then, oh heavens, the pavilar, what beatings of tom-toms, what mouthings of pharisaical moralities, platitudes. Run now, good people, for you may see clearly how evil is dealt with in high places. It made him smile, such hypocrisy, such cant. Still, so the world was organized, and it was not for him to set it right. Let it wag as it would. The thing for him to do was to get rich and hold his own, to build up a seeming of virtue and dignity which would pass muster for the genuine thing. Force would do that, quickness of wit, and he had these. I satisfy myself, was his motto, and it might well have been emblazoned upon any coat of arms which he could have contrived to set forth his claim to intellectual and social nobility. But this matter of Eileen was up for consideration and solution at this present moment, and because of his forceful, determined character, he was presently not at all disturbed by the problem it presented. It was a problem, like some of those knotty financial complications which presented themselves daily, but it was not insoluble. What did he want to do? He couldn't leave his wife and fly with Eileen, that was certain. He had too many connections. He had too many social, and, thinking of his children and parents, emotional as well as financial ties to bind him. Besides, he was not at all sure that he wanted to. He did not intend to leave his growing interests, and at the same time he did not intend to give up Eileen immediately. The unheralded manifestations of interest on her part was too attractive. Mrs. Cowperwood was no longer what she should be physically and mentally, and that in itself to him was sufficient to justify his present interest in this girl. Why fear anything, if only he could figure out a way to achieve it without harm to himself? At the same time, he thought it might never be possible for him to figure out any practical or protective program for either himself or Eileen, and that made him silent and reflective. For by now, he was intensely drawn to her, as he could feel. Something chemic and hence dynamic was uppermost in him now and clamoring for expression. At the same time, in contemplating his wife in connection with all this, he had many qualms, some emotional, some financial. While she had yielded to his youthful enthusiasm for her after her husband's death, he had only since learned that she was a natural conservator of public morals. The cold purity of the snowdrift, insofar as the world might see, combined at times with the murky mood of the wanton. And yet, as he had also learned, 
She was ashamed of the passion that at times swept and dominated her. This irritated Cowperwood, as it would always irritate any strong, acquisitive, direct-seeing temperament. While he had no desire to acquaint the whole world with his feelings, why should there be concealment between them? Or at least mental evasion of a fact which physically she subscribed to. Why do one thing and think another? To be sure, she was devoted to him in her quiet way, not passionately. As he looked back, he could not say that she had ever been that, but intellectually. Duty, as she understood it, played a great part in this. She was dutiful. And then, what people thought, what the time spirit demanded, these were the great things. Eileen, on the contrary, was probably not dutiful, and it was obvious that she had no temperamental connection with current convention. No doubt she had been well instructed, as many another girl, but look at her. She was not obeying her instructions. In the next three months, this relationship took on a more flagrant form. Eileen, knowing full well what her parents would think, how unspeakable in the mind of the current world were the thoughts she was thinking, persisted nevertheless in so thinking and longing. Cowperwood, now that she had gone thus far and compromised herself in intention, if not indeed, took on a peculiar charm for her. It was not his body. Great passion is never that exactly. The flavor of his spirit was what attracted and compelled, like the glow of a flame to a moth. There was a light of romance in his eyes, which, however governed and controlled, was directive and almost all-powerful to her. When he touched her hand at parting, it was as though she had received an electric shock, and she recalled that it was very difficult for her to look directly into his eyes. Something akin to a destructive force seemed to issue from them at times. Other people, men particularly, found it difficult to face Cowperwood's glazed stare. It was as though there were another pair of eyes behind those they saw, watching through thin, obscuring curtains. You could not tell what he was thinking. And during the next few months, she found herself coming closer and closer to Cowperwood. At his home one evening, seated at the piano, no one else being present at the moment, he leaned over and kissed her. There was a cold, snowy street visible through the interstices of the hangings of the windows and gas lamps flickering outside. He had come in early, and hearing Eileen, he came to where she was seated at the piano. She was wearing a rough, gray, wool-cloth dress, ornately banded with fringed oriental embroidery in blue and burnt orange, and her beauty was further enhanced by a gray hat planned to match her dress, with a plume of shaded orange and blue. On her fingers were four or five rings, far too many, an opal, an emerald, a ruby, and a diamond, flashing visibly as she played. She knew it was he without turning. He came beside her, and she looked up smiling, the reverie invoked by Schubert partly vanishing, or melting into another mood. Suddenly he bent over, and pressed his lips firmly to hers. His mustache thrilled her with its silky touch. She stopped playing and tried to catch her breath, for, strong as she was, it affected her breathing. Her heart was beating like a trip hammer. 
She did not say, oh, or you mustn't, but rose and walked over to a window where she lifted a curtain, pretending to look out. She felt as though she might faint, so intensely happy was she. Cowperwood followed her quickly. Slipping his arms about her waist, he looked at her flushed cheeks, her clear, moist eyes and red mouth. "'You love me?' he whispered, stern and compelling because of his desire. "'Yes, yes, you know I do.' He crushed her face to his, and she put up her hands and stroked his hair. A thrilling sense of possession, mastery, happiness, and understanding, love of her and of her body, suddenly overwhelmed him. "'I love you,' he said, as though he were surprised to hear himself say it. I didn't think I did, but I do. You're beautiful. I'm wild about you. And I love you, she answered. I can't help it. I know I shouldn't, but, oh. Her hands closed tight over his ears and temples. She put her lips to his and dreamed into his eyes. Then she stepped away quickly, looking out into the street, and he walked back into the living room. They were quite alone. He was debating whether he should risk anything further when Nora, having been in to see Anna next door, appeared, and not long afterward, Mrs. Cowperwood. Then Eileen and Nora left. End of chapter 19